he loyally served for four years. A federal grand jury in Miami continued hearing from witnesses, including Secret Service agents assigned to Donald Trump. This happened today in the investigation into former President Donald J. Trump's possession of hundreds of classified documents as tensions ran high among his aides and advisors that charges might soon be filed against him. A ban of 11 House conservatives took the rare step of joining all Democrats to block a pair of GOP bills to protect gas stoves in order to express their anger at Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Ron DeSantis promised to drain the swamp in Tallahassee, but instead, over more than four years as Florida's governor, DeSantis has reconfigured the swamp to suit his political needs and his claim to be a reformer is getting fresh scrutiny. In anticipation of his 2024 presidential bid, DeSantis pushed the legislature to change Florida's resign-to-run law. He revised state policy so he could transfer $80 million in campaign cash to a federal political committee. And just after his official announcement last month, his administration pressured state legislators and lobbyists to aid his presidential campaign while they awaited his decisions on pet projects in the budget. That's the definition of the swamp. The Supreme Court will release annual financial disclosure reports today that list earnings, assets, gifts, and stock holdings as part of the judiciary's recently restated commitment to ethics standards. But Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito asked for 90-day extensions to file their forms, so we won't be getting their financial disclosure documents today. Chris Litt is out as chairman and chief executive of CNN during a close to a rocky tenure that drew national media attention, including a lengthy profile in the Atlantic that raised questions about the future of the cable news brand. A woman accused of fatally shooting her Florida neighbor in a dispute that involved the slain woman's children was finally arrested yesterday. A 50-year-old Your 50-year-old white woman was arrested on charges of manslaughter with a firearm, culpable negligence, battery, and two counts of assault for fatally shooting African-American A.J. Owens, the mother of four, uh, who was shot through a closed door in a small town in Florida on Friday night. Justice is finally served for that family. Former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani says a woman's lawsuit alleging he coerced her into sex and owes her nearly $2 million in unpaid wages is a large stretch of the imagination filled with exaggerations and salacious details to create a media frenzy. Giuliani said in court papers that he had a consensual relationship with Noel Dunphy for a few months in 2019 during his time as Trump's personal lawyer, but he denied ever uh, he denied that Dunphy ever worked for him or that he ever pressured her into sex. Well, California prepares to release a report that will recommend reparations for descendants of enslaved people. Federal lawmakers are pursuing their own efforts to redress the effects of slavery and the generations of discrimination that has followed for Black Americans. Representative Cory Bush, a Democrat from Missouri, has introduced the latest federal effort to support reparations uh, when she introduced H.R. 414, the Reparations Now Resolution which seeks to advance reparations at the federal, state, and local levels. The resolution indicates that a minimum of $14 trillion would be necessary to close the racial wealth gap and other inequities. 
You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this hour, I'm joined by two brilliant contributors, Dr. Calvin John Smiley. He's the author of Purgatory, Citizenship, Reentry, Race, and Abolition. And I'm also joined by the director of the Pat Brown Institute for Public Affairs at Cal State University, Raphael Sonnenshine. And in hour two, we go behind the headlines and dig deeper into the stories you are talking about. And today, the story is the story about the vice president. From Nikki Haley to Fox News, Republicans are fixated on Vice President Kamala Harris. I have some of the nation's leading political experts and the number one expert on the vice president's office joining me in hour two to break down the unique role of the vice president and how that role has been impacted by the first female and first African-American vice president. But before I bring on my guests, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. So yesterday I talked about this 58-year-old woman in Florida who shot the uh, A.J. Owens, Miss Owens, this young mother of four, shot her through a door uh, even before she knew what Miss Owens wanted to say to her uh, before she knew what the situation was. And it took a couple of days, literally, for her to be arrested. It took protests. It took an outcry from the community uh, before the sheriffs in Florida would actually arrest and now have charged this woman with manslaughter. But what I talked about yesterday was the racial implications and the disparate treatment that we see with respect to stand your ground laws in states across the country. And I got to really thinking about this morning, uh, this woman, this white woman, 58 years old, has had this altercation with Miss Owens for, uh, they said, at least several months. It had been ongoing. She called her children racial slurs. She apparently harassed the children as they tried to play outside in a, a field next to this apartment building. But I, I was thinking about the inherent uh, biases, implicit biases that so many white folks have about Black people, seeing us as being dangerous for no reason, not because we are or not because we've done anything, but just by virtue of the color of our skin. And I have to imagine that this woman, over the course of you know months that she's having this altercation with Miss Owens, uh, who was so bold as to use the N-word and to call her kids names, must have harbored some of those implicit biases toward uh, Miss Owens. And even before she would give Miss Owens an opportunity to talk to her about, you know, throwing something at her kids or yelling at her kids, she decided to pick up a firearm and to shoot several times through this closed door. Now, she knows Miss Owens is outside her door. She knows that when firing this gun, she is going to shoot her. Now, uh, and some would even argue that it was premeditated, that perhaps she had been planning to do ha harm to Miss Owens because of this kind of neighbor spat that they had been having for a while. But I, I think we can't think about what happened to this four, this mother of four. And sadly, apparently this shooting took place in front of her nine-year-old. We can't think about this tragedy without putting it in the context of what has been happening in Florida and states like Florida for the last couple of years, particularly since Ron DeSantis has been governor of Florida. If you strip Black history from schools, if you remove books from the shelves, if you send the explicit message that Black history doesn't matter, 
that the struggles of Black people don't matter, if the history of slavery in this country doesn't matter, then you are sending a message to people like this shooter that the lives of Black people, that our lives don't matter. And you can't separate these biases and these prejudices that people have towards Black people from some of the policy, uh, the policies that are being enacted by these conservative legislatures. So if people really care about Black lives and if Black lives are to really matter, we've got to take action. We have to prevent governors like Ron DeSantis from, one, getting elected into office, getting reelected into office, and then once, uh, assuming they you know, slide by and are somehow elected, then from carrying out the kinds of policies that he and other governors, like the governor in Texas, had been doing for the last couple of years, because those policies are sending messages that are dangerous, and they are dangerous. Uh, and we saw that you know, in action on Friday night when this woman was so emboldened that rather than call the police, rather than have a conversation through the door, which we often do when people knock at our door, rather than open the door and try to resolve this matter uh, and treat Miss Owens with the humanity and dignity that she deserved, she decided that she would pick up a gun and shoot this lady and then try to stand on Florida's very flawed stand your ground law and try to make the claim that she was somehow acting in self-defense, that she was justified by standing behind a closed door and firing at Ms. Owens. Thankfully, the public stood up, spoke up, and demanded justice. And now this woman is facing uh, what should be a very, very, very lengthy jail sentence once she is prosecuted fully, once she either is tried by a jury, jury of her peers, or maybe she pleads out or whatever, but hopefully this sends a message that Black lives do matter. And if we really, really want them to matter, we have to make sure that the people that we elect into office recognize our value and our worth and stop enacting policies that diminish us and diminish our value. Because there are shooters like this lady just waiting to act. And we cannot as a community, continue. Enough is enough. When we come forward, more of today's trending news and my expert uh, contributors right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Before a crowd of several hundred on the campus of the Des Moines Area Community College, Mike Pence focused on something that many in his party have tried to desperately avoid, and that's Mr. Trump's actions on January 6, 2021. This is what Pence said. January 6 was a tragic day in the life of our nation, but thanks to the courage of law enforcement, the violence was quelled. We reconvened the Congress the very same day President Trump's reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol. All right, Professor Smiley, what do you make of Mike Pence going after Donald Trump and talking about a topic that none of the other Republican candidates have ever mentioned since their 
launch of their campaigns. You know, he's got to separate himself. He, you know, the time has passed. The the honeymoon is clearly over. And if he wants any sort of uh, future political career, whether that's running for president or something else, you know, this is the time to kind of act and um uh, and, and move that that needle that he is not just the Trump lackey anymore, but someone who can stand on his own two feet and uh, be his own person, right? He's not going to just be the shadow, but he's going to be uh, Pence, the, the figure or figurehead, as we might call it. So, Rafe, we know that other Republican candidates have not only not mentioned the attack on the Capitol, but they've actually contorted themselves to avoid ever talking about it believing that it would alienate their voters. Some are even trying to reframe the attack as an inside job by the FBI or something that was done by leftist groups uh, who were pretending to be Donald Trump supporters. So is Pence going to alienate the handful of voters that might be voting for him by talking about this taboo subject? He really has no choice. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead, Ray. Jump in here. Sorry, Dr. Smiley. I didn't know that you, if you were asking me or Dr. Smiley, I I couldn't tell. Um, I I think Dr. Smiley's right. And I think I'm a little surprised. It's a little nervier than Mike Pence has ever been. But it's the only path forward if you have any chance to wrest the nomination from Trump, is you've got to go at him as hard as you possibly can, unless you're really running for vice president or running for president four years after 2024 and hope to keep the base in your pocket. Those other candidates will be watching to see what happens to Pence. Uh, He might be the first one on the beach um, and they'll see whether it destroys his campaign. But if it doesn't and he gets some good publicity on it, a few of them may actually dip their toes in the water of something a little more direct than what they've been doing. Sorry to interrupt you, Dr. Smiley. I didn't know. No, and I'll go back to you, Dr. Smiley, in this because today there was this frenzy happening on Twitter where people were actually tweeting that Mark Meadows, former chief of staff for Donald Trump, had pled uh, guilty to some lesser uh, felonies with the FBI, I mean, with the Department of Justice, and he was, you know, becoming a, a full-fledged witness for the uh, Department of Justice against Donald Trump and that Donald Trump's indictment was imminent, like happening tomorrow. And I've been combing the newspapers trying to see if there's any validity to the story. Haven't been able to verify this story, but that's what's been said on Twitter. Now, given that Mike Pence has gone after Trump in his announcement today, do you think he's going to go after Trump on these criminal uh, you know, indictments and this legal jeopardy that he finds himself in? Because the candidates have also been very silent on Trump's legal problems. He might. I mean, you know, again, uh, as my colleague just said, he's he's dipping his toe into the water. He'll see what what kind of sticks, what doesn't. And for Mike Pence, he, he is the evangelical candidate. So he might be banking that he can pull some of the evangelical right away from Trump. He can pull more of the kind of center right away from Trump um, and, you know, just leave Trump with the with the fringes or the kind of more extreme parts of the party. and. He can really uh, um, rest his laurels on that. So, you know, we'll see. Mike Pence, for the four years that he was vice president, wasn't the mudslinger. He was the quiet guy behind the scenes with the fly on his head. Right. So he didn't have that in him. (laughs) But we'll have to see where where he might go with it. Um, And I think this kind of first foray into taking that first stab shows that it's in him. 
but uh, not sure if it will actually be him. So, Rafe, everybody's just assuming that Ron DeSantis is the heir apparent. If Donald Trump somehow has this big fall because of indictments or something that it's, you know, Ron DeSantis is going to be there to pick up the pieces and he'll just easily move into the number two slot. But this guy's record and what he has done in Florida. And of course, when you get on the national stage, everything becomes, uh, you know, magnified and your life becomes an open book. And some of the things he's done in Florida, like, you know, pushing to change the law so he can stay governor while he runs for president, you know, changing the law so he can get this $80 million transferred to his uh, campaign, you know, trying to present himself as somehow not the elite. Uh, folks are going back, digging into his record when he was in Congress, pointing out that he was basically did nothing while he was in Congress. Uh, you know, the guy went to Harvard, went to Yale, Princeton or something like that. So he is the elite of the elite, but he's always pointing the finger. And he claims that I didn't do anything in Congress because these other elites, you know, he's always pointing the finger at someone. Do you think folks are going to when they, you know, when the onion really gets peeled back and we see who Ron DeSantis is for the swamp creature that he is, do you think he really becomes the number two? Or might there be someone out there that we're underestimating who slides into Trump's position if there is some change uh, with Trump and his popularity? I agree, by the way. And by the way, everything you described is the reason that he is a contender for the Republican nomination. I mean, those things are not popular with the country as a whole, but they do thrill the base. But it seems that it thrills the base right up until people actually meet him. And he seems to have a problem that in politics is usually fatal, which is that when you actually talk to other human beings, you are kind of out of sync. You laugh at the wrong time. You say strange things. You don't really seem to like people very much. And he doesn't have a lot of friends in the Republican Party even. And he's so prominent now that everybody has an incentive to take him down instead of taking down Trump. So I'm not sure he goes the distance. I think he's got a lot of kind of personal kind of political appearance issues. And the other stuff that you listed would certainly be very bad for him in a general election. I think there's somebody else. And I think Pence is gambling that if he can do what Dr. Smiley said it just right, is this really him? Is this really him tomorrow and the day after and the day after that? He may be saying, I might create a new lane that doesn't exist right now. And that would really rock the race. Yeah, Dr. Smiley, reading this article today, I mean, they are going, you're right, Rafe, because when you become the man, then all eyes on you. And that's what's happening to Ron DeSantis right now. I mean, they're digging in his past. They're looking at his congressional record. They're looking at that 2018 endorsement from Donald Trump and, you know, him reading a, a book to his babies about Donald Trump and putting those little onesies on his children that had Donald Trump's name on them. I, I'm, I'm starting to think more and more, this guy's not the guy. How are you feeling, Dr. Smiley, as we're learning more about how just so corrupt Ron DeSantis is. Yeah, I mean, he, he's an opportunist to the fullest, fullest extent. Um, if we think back to, to his uh, first gubernatorial race against Gillum, it was close, at least in, in, the, mm -hmm. in, the, in the early early days. I mean, you know, we all know what happened to Andrew Gillum, but, you know, um, uh, DeSantis wasn't really inspiring people in the same way that Trump was inspiring uh, what becomes his base. And so what we also learn is that DeSantis doesn't really know what he's doing. Um, and so every time we, we, we find out that he doesn't know what he's doing, he pivots to some other 
you know, boogeyman. So it's CRT, it's, 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 uh, gender based bathrooms. It's, it's, uh, wokeness. It's all of these kind of buzzwords. You know, he's kind of a walking, uh, Twitter troll in the <laughs> sense that, you know, he, he hears something and he just goes with it. And, it. and it's the same with this idea of the draining the swamp, right? That has become the new echo chamber of the, of the GOP of we're just going to drain the swamp. And what does that even really mean? Um, because if we think about this from an ecological standpoint, you know, not to get all sciencey, we actually need swamps, right? Swamps preserve certain kind of, uh, you know, life forms. It, it, it creates, uh, uh, you know, natural barriers for flooding. I mean, so swamps are good. And so, again, it, it, it has no basis to it. And we really don't even understand what it means. But it's a, it's a catchphrase that really fits into the kind of Twitter verse of, can I say something in 120 characters and just keep people uh, entertained and in, in tuned in? Yeah, just like that, your your explanation is right on point. <laughs> Let's add the word elite, Washington elites. Here's the guy that is like Mr. Ivy Tower, and he's always calling someone an elite. Like, well, what, what's to make you? And he tries to cast, you know, he's trying to take out of Donald Trump's playbook and cast himself as some kind of, you know, populist candidate, some kind of everyday guy. And there's, I mean, there's nothing about this guy that's like you, me, or most of the world. And he just loves these terms, you know, woke goes to die in Florida. And, you know, yeah, you the Washington elite, the he just loves these little buzz phrases, but they won't get him very far. I'm just glad that we are not sleeping on him and we're starting early to dig deep into his history and his past. And we are exposing him so, you know, that we don't have a, a another, you know, George Santos on our hand where we don't pay much attention to him. And then we realize he's just one big disaster, one big fraud. Uh, so I, I'm I'm starting to think there's somebody else in that GOP lineup of I guess there are ten of them now that's going to emerge as that potential second person if Donald Trump does find himself in all kinds of legal trouble. Which, like I said, the Twitter was just blazing this afternoon with news that he was going to be indicted tomorrow, and he himself said they were coming after him. So it's been a lot of back and forth, and you know usually where there's smoke, there is some fire. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if those indictments are not imminent. Uh, when we come forward, more with Dr. Calvin John Smiley and more with Raphael Sunshine. Well, today's trending news. We're going to talk about Rudy Giuliani back in the news. Clarence Thomas, our favorite Supreme Court justice, not, uh, and CNN is in the news right here on KBLA Talk fifteen eighty. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Professor Smiley, today was supposed to be the day where the Supreme Court released its annual financial disclosure reports. And these are reports that were supposed to tell us about the earnings, the assets, the gifts, the stock holdings uh, as part of the judiciary's recently restated commitment to ethics standards. Now, we know this has all been a part of media coverage because Clarence Thomas, we've learned, has taken these lavish trips, had his mother's home paid for and is in bed with this GOP billionaire donor. Now, we know Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito had to know the date that these forms were disclosed. But today they say, oh, wait, 
Can't release my report today. Can't tell you about my uh, gifts and stock holdings and earnings because I need 90 more days. What are you to make of this and the Supreme Court's commitment to really uh, providing uh, this kind of information and being transparent about the relationships, the financial relationships that his members have? It, it just continues to show the mockery that Clarence Thomas and others on the court have made of, of that title and role that they hold. Um, being on the Supreme Court is it's a huge deal. It's a life appointment. Um, other than death or some other extreme circumstance, they are there for life. And so they have to be held to a higher standard and scrutinized at that higher standard because of the, the power that they wield. And the fact that Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito have been even uh, been allowed to have this 90 days uh, shows how they can continue to kind of kick the can down the road, uh, something that probably you or I or Rafe wouldn't be able to have uh, in the same way, uh, under the same circumstances even. And so I would love to see um, more pressure put on Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito to be transparent, because as you say, you know, they had to have known that this was coming and they uh, probably are in both. We know Clarence Thomas for sure is definitely in the financial in a good financial situation that he could have had his tax guy accountant or whomever handles his, his financial disclosure uh, reports uh, working a, a couple extra hours to get that in on time. Yeah. My guess is they're trying to kick, this can down the road as far and as long as they can with the hopes that there won't be the kind of scrutiny on the Supreme Court that there has been over the last couple of months so that when we do see these reports, you know, they don't have the kind of uh, shock value uh, and as many eyes on them has been, you know, as has been on these stories about what appears to be just rank corruption in the Supreme Court. Uh, it definitely doesn't do anything to instill any sense of trust or confidence or, you know, rebuilding the trust that they have lost with the American people. Uh, shame on you, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. You all are not above the law. You're not, you know, special. And we deserve, as you said, Professor Smiley, you have these lifetime tenure jobs and you're making decisions about the most personal uh, you know, issues in the lives of 330 million people. At the, the least you could do is... Uh, take the time and invest in providing this information to the American people. We we deserve to see it. Uh, I want to ask you, Rafe, about you know, CNN chairman, chief executive there just a little over a year. Does this explosive uh, interview allows this reporter from the Atlantic to you know attach himself to his side? I'm not sure what he thought this journalist was going to write, but he got what probably most people expected, which was this pretty explosive uh, expose on him. And it wasn't positive. It was quite negative, to be honest. Uh, but a lot of this has to do with that Donald Trump uh, town hall that CNN had. And it raises the bigger question about how is media going to cover someone like Donald Trump, someone like Nikki Haley, who had her own town hall, not well watched, you know, low ratings for her. Chris Christie's going to have one soon. All of these Republicans, CNN is committed to having town halls with them. What should the media do in these town halls in particular, when you get folks who just out and out lie, like to lie about the election, something that's been resolved, lie about things that are factually capable of being established, and they sit there and, and just tell a bold-faced lie. CNN got caught 
in a terrible spot of their own making, which is they believed literally the complaint conservatives, especially on the MAGA side, made about the media that if only they got better treatment, they wouldn't be so mad. They'd be nicer people and everything would be just fine. So like nice people and also maybe not nice people wanting to sort of expand their audience, they sacrificed their own audience. They threw their own audience in the garbage. They threw their reporters in the garbage. Part of what brought him down was the what looked like a mutiny from CNN staff that were more than willing to tell everybody that the article was right and that this was all wrong. You really can't buy people off by taking their complaints literally and saying, oh, so we shouldn't criticize you at all when you say things, then you won't say those bad things anymore. They just put that in the bank and say more of the same things. So, and then you lose your own audience. So CNN is nowhere. They're the roadkill that's in the middle of the highway between right and left. And it's going to take them a very long time to recover from that. And I, I think that this guy placed himself in that spot, thought it was a brilliant plan and uh, didn't work. Yeah, so not only that, so we know after that disastrous town hall, they had a uh, congressman, Byron Donalds, uh, they bumped one of their regular uh, contributors to put mm -hmm. Byron Don Donalds. He's this black uh, conservative out of, I guess, where is he from? He's from uh, Florida, it's 19th Congressional District. And they put him on the panel thinking that somehow, again, that he was going to do something other than what they always do. And he sat there and he spewed the same you know, lies and misinformation. And he literally, I read an article that said the guy got off the set and walked with, you know, from two feet from the camera and got on his Twitter account and started tweeting that CNN was garbage, was trash. You know, he just started, like, as you said, Rafe, you know, this notion that somehow if you listen to these folks, you give them a platform, maybe they'll be nice and maybe they won't trash you. But Professor Smiley, the article said this guy literally was off the stage from his appearance in 20 seconds. He's on his Twitter account trashing CNN. You know, so how, how are you going to, how is the mainstream media going to cover these kinds of, of Republicans or should they? I guess that's the bigger question. Should they give them a platform at all? You know, it, it's it's CNN trying to do the both sides argument kind of thing. And and then I'm sure it's about ratings. They're looking at Fox News ratings. They're trying to pull some of their uh, audience. They want to be, you know, um, sensational. Right. You know, I think there was a it was either a Saturday Night Live or, or some kind of skit once. And it was talking about how we have these 24 seven news networks and, you know, Every story is breaking news. Over time, it kind of dilutes <laughs> the whole idea of what breaking news is. So you know, but but it it, it almost lends itself to this kind of it, it shock it shock value. And so to have this guy get on uh, and say outrageous things isn't really about being news credible, but it's about are people going to make CNN trend on Twitter? Are people going to talk about CNN tomorrow at the water cooler? Right, and and that. And that becomes a, a problem when you're uh, wanting to be seen as a legitimate news source. I don't think many folks see Fox News as a, as a legitimate news source. I think for a while people were, were seeing CNN as that, but um, clearly they've had some missteps uh, and uh, are going down this road, as Rafe said, as just being uh, middle of the road roadkill. And, and I agree with that. You know, I guess there used to be a time in our politics where you could have a debate 
Yeah, I'm thinking back to old shows that were on CNN, like Crossfire, you know, where you had Republicans and Democrats who would debate each other, but there was some common agreement about what the facts were, right? So we weren't debating whether Joe Biden was the president. Maybe the debate was whether he was a good president or a bad president, not whether he had actually won the election. So, you know, Rafe, if you have fundamental disagreement about facts that are well-established, do you give these Republicans a voice at all, a platform at all? Or do you just say, you know what, just stay on Fox? Like We can't even, because you don't see it on MSNBC. You know, Trump is never going to go on MSNBC. He's never going to sit down with Rachel Maddow, or one of those, you know, very credible journalists. You don't stack the audience with their most loyal supporters and try to intimidate the reporter who's asking questions, which is what happened at the town hall. You put them on. You don't try to silence people, but you question them really, really hard, persistently, and don't give them a studio audience. Don't give them a studio audience. Have them come in the way most news programs are. Sit at the table. And I'm all for for rough debate. In fact, the debate I'm looking forward to is someday it's going to be Gavin Newsom against Ron DeSantis. And you'll start to see two people with the gloves off. You know, Democrats are very polite. You know, they like to win style points in the debate. But strong, rough debate is really good. A, an audience that's completely one sided and a reporter that can't break past that audience, that's not good. Yeah, turned into a MAGA rally. Uh, not good yeah. at all. And obviously, when that happens, heads always have to roll. <laughs> That's just the nature of this business. Uh, money is far more important than anything else at the end of the day. And those, uh, you know, skyrocketed ratings for that one CNN town hall with Donald Trump that was basically a train wreck. Uh, you know, the next day, all those Fox viewers had gone back to Fox. They right. were not sticking with CNN. <laughs> Uh, so that was uh, just a failed uh, experiment. When we come forward, Rudy Giuliani is back in the news. And something uh, he said in his defense of this claim by Noel Dunphy really struck me as odd. We're going to talk about it when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. So former mayor of New York, Mayor uh, Mayor Rudy Giuliani, is back in the news. And this time it's because he's being sued by a woman who says that he owes her nearly $2 million in unpaid wages. Uh, and she's also saying that he sexually harassed her. And Rudy is responding by saying this is all just made up. This woman is trying to get media attention uh, that you know, she's exaggerated. He said that she never worked for him. Uh, but he did say that in 2019, when he was Trump's personal lawyer, he had a consensual relationship with this woman. Her name is Noel Dunphy. I, I don't know about you, Dr. Smiley, but I'm sitting here thinking like, really, Rudy? <laughs> I was not expecting him to acknowledge that he had a consensual relationship with this woman. Obviously, he's a grown ass man. He can have relationships with whomever he chooses. And I'm not, you know, uh, trying to be too judgy here, but you're working for the president. You're the personal lawyer. You come into contact with professionals, women and men. And really, you got to have a relationship with someone you're working at this time. <laughs> Well, I guess by now he's not. Well, yeah, it's 2019. So he's still working for Donald Trump, who's the president of the United States. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'll say it. You know, I think he's guilty of sin. Um, you know, we all saw, uh, Borat number two, where, uh, Rudy found himself in a very compromised situation with the, uh, the actress who was playing a young girl in a hotel for this, uh, fake interview. And, you know, halfway through it, the, the hidden cameras caught him with his, his hand down his pants. And, you know, his whole claim was that he was, uh, you know, whatever it was, but, you know, there's clearly a pattern here. This man, uh, you know, it's like, looks like a duck, talks like a duck, walks like a duck. It's a duck. And that's, that's what Rudy Giuliani is to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, Rafe, this woman says that she worked, she called it off the books as Giuliani's business development director, public relations consultant, uh, during the time again, that he's working for the president. Do these people have any, class you know like everybody class this is the guy that was america's mayor at one point you know this i was, is the guy I was that... just gonna say that <laughs> he was i mean oh my god i mean don't you know when to leave the stage you know the play's over i mean he had a great run uh could have retired after being mayor had a few unsuccessful runs for us but there's something about trump's ability like a magnet to draw people at their worst into his orbit and it's not even clear he was ever Trump's real lawyer. Everybody, a lot of people call themselves Trump's lawyer. His world is this informal world of no clear rules. Nobody knows who's who. Nobody knows what the boundaries are. It's like I've, I've never seen a political world like this. And it pulls in people who want to be relevant. And I really think for someone like Giuliani to be in the company of people like Trump and the people around him at his age now – He's relevant. And it, I'm discovering it's amazing the things people will do to stay relevant around Trump, including people like Lindsey Graham, you know, who had a certain amount of respect at one point. But then they want to be relevant. They want to be in the mix. And Trump knows that about them. And he throws them out and he brings them back and he throws them out. He doesn't pay Rudy. Then he does maybe pay him. I don't know. He calls him names and he brings them back. Yeah. Oh, my it, God. This is not it, the world of politics I've ever seen before. No, it really is amazing when you look at the caliber of lawyers and other professionals that he is able to draw into his orbit and how much they lose. I mean, many have lost their law licenses. Yeah. They've been fine. Uh, you know, they've been disciplined by, you know, respective bars throughout the country. Their reputations have been lost. You know, relationships have lost. And some, you know, literally indicted. They are facing criminal indictment because of their involvement in their relationships with Donald Trump. It's, it's amazing that one man can cause all these other successful men and women to jeopardize what they've worked so hard to build, uh, you know, their names, their reputations, their careers, and they just let it go up in smoke. You know, we can start with, you know, Michael Cohen. And you know, this guy was at some point, I guess, a respected lawyer or something in the city of New York. And, and you know, he ended up going to jail for Donald Trump. So it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, but before we run out of time, I want to talk about California as uh, we are preparing for this big reparations report. Uh, Dr. Smiley, it's supposed to be about a thousand pages. Uh, asking for what may be, uh, you know, billions of dollars for the state of California to make uh, the descendants of slaves whole. And now we have Cori Bush uh, stepping up on the federal scene, taking, you know, over where John Conyers and Sheila Jackson Lee left uh, this, you know, off. And, and Sheila Jackson Lee is obviously still in Congress. She's running for the mayor of Houston and may be departing from Congress. But 
uh, a new federal resolution saying that at a minimum $14 trillion would have to be paid to close the racial wealth gap. Do you think the issue of reparations is going to become a big part of the 2024 uh, presidential campaign, at least on the Democratic side? I think it might become a, a talking point, you know, at least in the short term. I, I hope that this has a, a longer term sustainability because, you know, those those checks are not going to get cut overnight and it's going to have to do a lot with, uh, uh, you know, getting uh, people in Congress and, and others on board. But I think that if we can see a, a, at least a glimmer of it show up, I think it, it can definitely have a, a longer term uh, conversation. You know, we think about, uh, you know, things like universal basic income, UBI. Uh, I think at one point <laughs> folks thought that was a pipe dream. And now that has become um, a, a real uh, springboard for, for many folks from local, state and even at the federal level um, uh, for their for their platform. So I think a, a real conversation of what reparations would look like, how it would be distributed um uh it, it is is for fair game and it and there's no timetable there's no expiration date on reparations uh in this country and so uh it, i really do hope it, it continues to move forward so rafe we know california bracing itself for this thousand page report that's going to come out uh, at the end of june no budget line item in the may revise from gavin newsom in california that speaks to any kind of payment on this issue of reparations. What do you make of that? I think like Dr. Smiley says, this is moving slowly, but a little faster than anybody expected. It may reshape a lot of debates though, in ways we haven't thought of, which is the, the report itself is filled with suggestions and ideas for how to unpack the legacy of institutional racism and discrimination, not all of which involve direct reparations, but involve government action to undo government actions, which is a long overdue conversation. And I hope when people, I read the initial report and I was stunned by the level of depth of the discussion of institutions. And I think that's part of the education process that this may be beginning to set off, which would be earth shattering. Uh, in the long run, if, if people began to see the connection between and among those things. That's my thought. I worry, Rafe, you, you just said something about the plethora of suggestions in this report. I looked at the one from San Francisco. I, I worry about the the being over, overwhelming people, Dr. Yeah. Smiley, with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of recommendations and things that should be done, policies that should be enacted. You know, is there some wisdom in just trying to make this a little simple? You know, keep it a little simple, <laughs> stupid. You know, we're not going to undo everything that's been done from an institutional systemic racism standpoint in this country. I, I get a little worried when I keep hearing about this thousand-page report. First of all, yeah. who's reading it? And, you know, how do we digest it down to something that's tangible, that's doable? Yeah, but I think that's the point, right, is that you have to start with the thousand pages to get to the 10 pages, right? You can't start with the 10 pages because that right. goes then to zero pages. And so I think the, the kind of initial impetus to have this very large, overwhelming report is not to overwhelm people like it can't be done, but overwhelm people like we can choose some of these things and actually right. make them happen. What what are your uh or hopes about what happens at the federal level. Corey Bush jumping into the fray, 
you know, trying to elevate this issue that has been stuck. H.R. 40 has been stuck in Congress. Ray, Dr. Smiley, yeah, Dr. Smiley, oh, what do you think oh, about Corey Bush? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, no, I think it's great. I, I you know, I, I really love uh, Corey Bush as uh, one of the one of the folks in the squad. I mean, she's one who's been bold. She, um, for the most of her tenure here, uh, has an A rating in my book. You know, she's one of the few who's come out uh, saying that defund the police is an important step towards public safety, which many other in the squad and other more progressive Democrats were even scared to do. And so I think she's she's that congressperson who who's going to take these bold steps and make these initiatives important because she lives it right. I mean, she was yeah. an activist turned congress uh, congressperson, not um, you know someone like a DeSantis who comes from the the elites and now is talking <laughs> down to everyone else. So uh, I really do love it and hope it, it moves forward. Yeah, I'm excited about that too. St. Louis actually uh, is moving forward with a study group to study reparations in the city of St. Louis. So only appropriate that Cori Bush, a Missouri congresswoman, takes the uh, mantle forward on this issue. Thanks so much, Professor John Smiley, author of Purgatory, Citizenship, Reentry, Race, and Abolition. And thank you so much, uh, Raphael Sun and Shine, RAFE, a Pat Brown Institute <laughs> for Public Affairs at Cal State University. Always a pleasure to see both of you when we come forward. More on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. Plan from Verizon is the kind of control we all deserve. Get exactly what you want. Only pay for what you need. Get my plan at your Verizon store today. This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. A couple of numbers to keep track of tonight in Game 3 of the NBA Finals. The Denver Nuggets are 0-3 in the playoffs when Senator Nikola Jokic scores 40 or more points. And they've lost seven straight games when Jokic has five or fewer assists. A weird formula for the Nuggets, but it is something for Nuggets and Miami Heat fans to keep an eye on. The Dodgers are in Cincinnati for the second game of their six-game road trip. The Dodgers' bullpen needs to make up for a serious breakdown on Tuesday. The bullpen blew a five-run lead. They allowed five runs, nine hits, and walked four. Coco Golf lost to Iga Swiatek in the French Open quarterfinals today. Golf went down in two sets, 6-4, 6-2. Golf lost to Swiatek in the French Open final last year. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. More news, opinions, and conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Is there a better day of the year to celebrate the anniversary of the only unapologetically progressive talk station west of the Mississippi focused on issues that impact the black community? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. We think not. A station that amplifies black voices like yours with hosts and guests who look and sound like you. Celebrating our second anniversary on Juneteenth we're KBLA Talk 1580. And you ain't seen nothing yet. Pence delivers a strong rebuke to the Trump campaign during his announcement that he's running for president. The former vice president and now rival to Donald Trump gave his most aggressive criticism of his former boss, portraying him as unfit to be president and going further than ever before in condemning the character and values of the man he loyally served for four years. 
A federal grand jury in Miami continued hearing from witnesses on Wednesday in the investigation into Donald Trump's possession of classified documents as tensions ran high among his aides and advisors that charges might soon be filed against him. A band of 11 House conservatives took the rare step of joining all Democrats to block a pair of GOP bills to protect gas stoves in order to express their anger at Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Ron DeSantis, he promised to drain the swap in Tallahassee, but instead, over more than four years as Florida's governor, DeSantis has reconfigured the swamp to suit his political needs and his claim to be a reformer is getting fresh scrutiny. In anticipation of his 2024 presidential bid, he pushed the legislature to change Florida's resign to run law. He revised state policy so he could transfer $80 million in campaign cash to a federal political committee. And just after his official announcement last month, his administration pressured state legislators and lobbyists to aid his presidential campaign while they awaited his decisions on pet projects in the budget. Well, the Supreme Court was due to release annual financial disclosure reports today that list earnings, assets, gifts, and stock holdings as part of the judiciary's recently restated commitment to ethics standards. However, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito asked for 90-day extensions to file their reports. Chris Lick is out as chair and chief executive of CNN, drawing a close to a rocky tenure that drew national media attention, including a lengthy profile in the Atlantic, and raised questions about the future of the cable news brand. A woman accused of fatally shooting her Florida neighbor in a dispute that involved the slain woman's children was arrested yesterday. Susan Lorenz, 58 years old, was arrested on charges of manslaughter with the firearm, culpable negligence, battery, and two counts of assault. Lorenz, who is white, is accused of fatally shooting African-American A.J. Owens, mother of four, through a closed door in a small town in Florida on Friday night. Former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani says a woman's lawsuit alleging that he coerced her into sex and owes her nearly $2 million in unpaid wages is a large stretch of the imagination filled with exaggerations and salacious details to create a media frenzy. Giuliani said in court papers that he had a consensual relationship with Noel Dunphy for a few months in 2019 during his time as former President Donald Trump's personal lawyer, but Giuliani denies ever having a relationship with this woman that involved pressuring her for sex, and he denies that she ever worked for him. You are listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trendy news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time, and this is the hour where we go behind the headlines and dig deeper into stories that people are talking about. Now, from Nikki Haley to Fox News, Republicans are obsessed with Vice President Kamala Harris. I have two of the nation's leading political experts and arguably the nation's far most expert on the vice president's position in office joining me in this hour to help us understand uh, what's 
up with these Republicans and their obsession with the vice president. Also, to help us understand a little more about the vice president's office in general, uh, Johnny Carson once remarked that anyone can grow up to be president and anyone who doesn't grow up can become vice president. And for decades, the vice president's office was a laughingstock. It was an office that was disparaged by many. People would make jokes about it. In fact, Daniel Webster turned down the chance to be on the ticket saying, quote, I don't propose to be buried until I'm dead, end of quote. What has changed since Daniel Webster refused to become the vice president of the United States? And what has changed so that now not only is the vice president's office not a laughing stock, but it is considered a threat, at least to Republicans who are obsessed with Vice President Kamala Harris. When we come forward, my experts join us and they're going to make us a whole lot smarter on the vice president's office and why the GOP is obsessed with Kamala Harris right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Council. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The office of the vice president changed when Walter Mondale was elected as vice president to Jimmy Carter. Mondale wanted to be more general advisor and troubleshooter, but to do so, he needed to have certain resources, including access to the president. He also needed his team, his people, that is, to be involved in the meetings uh, involving the president so that they could create a set of resources that would enable Mondale to carry out his vision. Uh, what Mondale and Jimmy Carter did while Mondale was vice president really transformed the vice president's office. And the vice president that we see today, Vice President Kamala Harris, is in many ways living out the vision that Walter Mondale had as he and Jimmy Carter worked to change the stature and the status of the vice president. Uh, I am joined in this hour by Robert Shrum. He's the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC and is a veteran political strategist that I often look to on these thorny questions about our political structure. And also joining me is the nation's foremost authority on the vice president and author of The White House Vice President, The Path to Significance, Mondale to Biden. Uh, and it's former law professor, Joel Goldstein. Thank you so much, Joel, and thank you, Robert, for joining me. I wanted to do this hour on the vice president because Nikki Haley, the GOP, they all seem obsessed with Kamala Harris. Nikki Haley going as far as saying that Joe Biden should take some kind of mental competency test, that he's too old, and all of that's kind of dog whistle to saying, if you vote for Joe Biden, who you're really voting for, is Kamala Harris. So before we talk about the obsession that the GOP has with our current uh, vice president, let's talk about the transformation of the vice president's office. So Joe, give us that little quick history on how the vice president's office went from being a laughing stock, so much so that Daniel Webster didn't even want the job, to where now it's a job that is so significant that the GOP is in fear of who is sitting in that vice president's office. 
Well, I think you really framed it very nicely. Um, I mean, it, for most of our history, the vice president spent most of his time presiding over the Senate. Uh, the vice presidential candidates were chosen for reasons of ticket balancing. Oftentimes they were ideologically uh, opposed to the president who they served with. Um, there was really no relationship or loyalty between the two of them. It be really uh, began to change um, uh, in the Eisenhower administration when, he, the, for the first time, the vice president really moves into the executive branch. But the vice president, uh, beginning with Vice President Nixon for a quarter of a century, while um, they did things in the executive branch, they were really very peripheral. And then I think, as you said, the real big bang was with Carter Mondale. Carter thought it was immoral to leave the vice president uninformed and to waste resources. He thought he needed help. He and Mondale got along very well. Uh, Mondale came up with a vision of the vice president as a across-the-board advisor and troubleshooter. And uh, they identified the resources, uh, as you mentioned, the access, time on the president's schedule, involvement of the uh, of their, the vice president's staff in meetings. And this really created a new model that was then followed by their successors. Uh, Reagan and George H.W. Bush followed it, um, uh, Clinton, Gore, and so forth. Bob, have we seen any examples after the Mondale and Carter example where, you know, the vice president and president didn't see eye to eye on issues, either ideological issues or, you know, issues of governance where there was tension between the two? Uh, I don't think we've had the kind of tension that you saw in earlier administrations. I mean, you know, Franklin Roosevelt basically uh, wasn't talking to John Nance Garner most of the time when he was vice president for the first two terms. I do have to say that, you know, a lot of vice presidents ended up becoming presidents. And while Daniel Webster's quote is very funny, the truth is, had he accepted that nomination in 1848, he would have been president by 1850. Uh, so he wouldn't have been buried. He would have been elevated. Uh, Good point, now, Bob. <laughs> now, I do believe that if you're going to have an effective vice president uh, and the vice president's going to have a real role of, uh, as, of the kind Joel described, uh, then there are going to be disagreements between the president and the vice president. I mean, Joe Biden was very skeptical about continuing the Afghanistan war. Uh, when he was uh, Barack Obama's vice president. But you want that. You want somebody who's going to push you on an issue like that. I mean, obviously, Biden lost that argument with Obama. Uh, uh, Al Gore, and I saw this myself, uh, pushed uh, uh, Bill Clinton very hard on the issue of climate and mm. the environment in general and had a real impact in doing that. Uh, uh, there can be examples that are not necessarily as happy uh, as those. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that, that he's entirely responsible, but Dick Cheney was certainly the leading person pushing for the Iraq war, which I think was one of the biggest mistakes in the history of, of, of American foreign policy. Uh, but we, we now have a powerful uh, vice president. And we, we often don't see, and I'd be interested in what Joel thinks about this. 
we often don't see that power manifested because a lot of it happens in private conversations between the president and the vice president. Now, you can be given a specific assignment, like Al Gore was given the assignment of reinventing government, trying to make it more efficient. Uh, and that's pretty visible. But some of the other stuff, you only find out when people write their memoirs or when the histories are written. Very good point, Bob. And why don't you speak to that, Joe? Because I, I think the GOP's obsession with Kamala Harris suggests that they know that she's very powerful, yet we frequently hear folks malign our vice president by saying, what does she do? We don't know what she does. She's not doing anything. So she gets a lot of criticism for, quote unquote, not doing anything. But if the person really wasn't doing anything, it, it begs the question as to why folks are so obsessed with her. So give us you know, your take on this whole notion of, of how powerful this office has become. Well, I, th I think, I mean, I think, you know, Bob has been in the room and, and I think he he explained it perfectly. I mean, I, I, the, the vice presidents, much of what they do is invisible um, and, and, and particularly their advising role. The surest way for any vice president, Democrat or Republican, to lose influence is to go to the media and say, the president was about to drive us off the cliff, and I walked into the Oval <laughs> Office and said, "Don't do X, do Y." And the president saw the light, and you know, uh, and everything. I'm the hero. I'm the hero. Yeah. Um, and 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 so, really, one of the one of the norms that has grown up in this period, um, especially with Carter and Mondale, is that the president and vice president would talk confidentially. And that gave them the power, as Bob said earlier, you don't want a vice president to be a yes person. When Walter Mondale went to Jimmy Carter with this vision, he said, one of the things I can do for you is give you advice that you don't want to hear, or I can help you hear a wider range of advice. Um, um, and so that's been one of the functions that vice presidents have served, as, as Biden did on Afghanistan and so forth. And, and so. Um, we, we never quite see exactly what a vice president is doing behind the scenes. What we do have access to is what she or he does in the public arena. And I think, you know, when you look at what Vice President Harris has been doing um, in, in, in the public sphere, I think it's been very important. And it's been um, in, in terms of, of, of being a spokesperson on some of the important issues of concern to the administration and to um, reachable uh, Democratic voters, and I th uh, among in addition to her foreign policy role, and I think those have been have been really significant contributions. Well, a couple things. One, I think Bob, everyone has been waiting, or people, I shouldn't say everyone. Some folks have been waiting for Vice President Harris to get some big assignment, like they say, you know, Joe Biden. You know, he got the economy, the, the you know, the 2008, you know, fallout of the economy was his, you know, baby to, to deal with. And they keep hoping that Harris gets something like that, not immigration, you know, not something that's so big, that's not solvable. Uh, is that a mistake or are people, you know, creating some false expectations? Oh, oh sure. And, and, and by the way, the number of migrants at the border has gone down uh, and the efforts that uh, Vice President Harris has made, I think, with some of the countries in Central America, uh, I think those efforts have had an impact. Uh, 
look, I, I yes, you you want a visible role, and uh, I think that we will see more and more and more of her. I mean, we we saw her giving the the commencement address uh, at West Point, and we're going to see more of that as 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 the months go on and as we head toward reelection. But I I still believe that the the Mondale model is the most important thing a vice president does, which is, you know, presidents, it's it's easy to say, yes, sir, Mr. President. Yes, sir, Mr. President. Yes, sir. Uh, and having someone who is not tied to that is invaluable. It doesn't mean, as I said earlier, they get listened to mm-hmm. I mean, all the time. I mean, I can give you another example from Mondale. He, he was... He was very much unhappy about uh, President Carter calling off the government for 10 or 12 days, going up to Camp David, having a whole set of meetings with people where he asked people, what am I doing wrong? And then coming down from the mountain and giving what became known as the Malay speech, which helped provoke uh, a primary challenge to him in in 1980. Mondale was right. His advice was not taken. Uh, Mm -hmm. So... I, but I think you will see more and more of Kamala Harris in the months ahead. And I would make two points about this. One is there is a huge amount of sexism in this, and there's a real element of racism in it. Uh, it's an appeal to that, not necessarily that the folks doing it themselves share that view, although they're more than happy to exploit it. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is it's a disguised attack, not very well disguised, on Joe Biden's age. Uh, I mean, here's a guy who has accomplished as much as any president since Lyndon Johnson and without Johnson's majorities in, in, in the Congress. And Republicans want to talk about his age. They want to keep talking about inflation, although it's coming down. They announced for president to talk about gas prices, although they're now lower than they were when he took office uh, in real dollar terms. Uh, so it's it's a way to not just attack her, but to attack him and to convey the idea that somehow or other she's some radical leftist, which mm-hmm. which is that, that they really they think they can get away with it because she happens to be a, 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 an African-American woman. Or a black woman, uh, and uh, you know you're going to just see more and more and more of it as time goes on. Now I don't think it's going to work. Yeah, uh, you know I you know I don't think the caravans of immigrants migrants worked in 2018. Uh, I I don't think that in 2022 all the scare stuff worked that Republicans were doing. They had like the worst midterm. Uh, or Biden had the best midterm of a Demo- any Democratic president since John F. Kennedy in, in 1962. Uh, but they're going to keep doing it. And we're just going to have to live with it. And Biden's going to live with it. And Kamala Harris is going to live with it. And she's just going to go about her job. Yeah, no doubt about it. And thank you for you know pointing out the, the, the sexism and racism because we know she has been subjected to some of the most vile 
uh, critiques that have nothing to do with the job. And, and Joe, people's expectation of her, so when we talk about sexism and racism, it plays itself out in this, these kinds of questions about what has she done, as if anybody can enumerate anything that Mike Pence did. Uh, you know, so... Uh, you know, how are we to frame what the president, the vice president does if a big part of what the vice president does is to confidentially advise the president? So, you know, she could be doing the most incredible job ever because it's advising Joe Biden on policy issues, uh, you know, keeping him from falling off a cliff, but not, as you said, running to the media, telling the media that she kept him from falling off a cliff. Well, I, th I think... Every vice president, beginning with with Mondale, has been a, a served a, to varying degrees as an across the board advisor and is sort of a surrogate for the president. But each one has done it a little bit differently, and you would expect they would do it differently because every president has a different managerial style, every president has different needs, um, every vice president has different strengths and relationships. And every president and vice president operate in a totally different political context. So one of the things that was really unfair to Vice President Harris is people would say, well, Vice President Biden did X. So right. isn't Vice President Harris going to do X? Well, th th that doesn't follow at all because, because President Biden might do things differently than President Obama did in certain respects. And and Vice President Harris has has strengths and relationships that, that Vice President Biden didn't have. So every time you're trying to ask, how can the vice president best add value to the administration? How can they best help you succeed? And I think that if you look at what she has done, um, you know, in anticipation of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade. And then after the decision, she has been by far the most vocal and visible voice in the administration with respect on, on reproductive rights. Um, she has also been a, 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 a powerful voice in the administration on really what I think is both a constitutional ideal, but an ideal of the of the Biden Harris administration of inclusivity. The idea that, that that there's a place for all of us in America and that we're all entitled to a fair shake. Um, she's done a lot of work on, on climate change and a lot of, uh, of events on that. Um, and, and then in addition to that, if you look at the, the foreign travel that she's done, United I need you to hold, hold that thought, sure. Joe, because I want to. I want you to keep enumerating all that she has done, because I don't think the Democrats are doing a good enough job of getting that message out. And when we come forward, I want to talk about Mike Pence, because Mike Pence has done something we've never seen a vice president do, and that is to trash the president that he served under. He did that today as he announced his run for president. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. Arriva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back. And in this hour of Ariva Martin in real time, I'm breaking down with uh, the nation's leading experts on the vice president's office 
what it means to be the vice president, what we don't know about what the vice president does, and why the obsession with Kamala Harris. I'm joined by Joe uh, Goldstein. He is one of the nation's uh, top experts on the vice president. He is the author of The White House Vice President, The Path to Significance, Mondale to Biden, and joined by Robert Schramm. He's the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC, a veteran political strategist, strategist and one of my go-tos on issues, uh, particularly historical issues related to our government. So, Joe, you were giving us this laundry list of things that our uh, illustrious vice president has done, oftentimes people don't know, and feign ignorance when it comes to the incredible work that she is doing. You talked about her work uh, you know, on foreign policy, being a spokesperson on the issue of abortion access. Uh, is there anything else that you think we are not doing a good job, we being Democrats, in terms of sounding out, off on in terms of what our vice president has done uh, since she's been in office? Well, I, I think I, I think there's three things that are, have been key. One is that I think she's taken the major issues of, of, of importance to the administration, and she's been a spokesperson on those. I think, second, that she's played a pivotal role in the Biden administration's foreign policy of trying to develop relations in, in important areas of the world. Uh, she had a highly successful trip to Africa, uh, She several trips to Asia, uh, where we're trying to establish strength, uh, vis particularly vis-a-vis -vis China, uh, four trips to Europe and so forth. She's played a very important role. And what she has been doing is really central to uh, other efforts of the administration in trying to strengthen America's relations. And then I think the third thing is that she really is a historic figure. Um, she's a historic figure because she's she's the first. She's the first woman ever to be elected to national office uh, in our 59th election. Um, and because of that, she not only has um, significance in the United States, but she has significance around the world. I get calls from reporters around the world who are doing stories about her, um, are doing books about her. I never got calls when Vice President uh, Pence or Biden or Cheney um, to the same extent. There, there's interest in her because of the historic nature of who she is. And when she gives a speech, say at West Point, like she did recently, and she's the first person to ever speak at the West Point commencement, it's a step forward and it's a step for America moving in a direction of inclusivity, uh, which really is one of the hallmark ideals, I think, of the Biden-Harris administration. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that again, because I get so frustrated. Oftentimes, some of my Black friends say to me, she hasn't done anything for Black people. And then I have to pull out this laundry list of Black folks who work in the administration uh, that are there in part because she is there and how Biden has one of the most, you know, diverse from, you know, the press secretary, first Black woman to be the, the, the White House press secretary. I mean, that is huge. I mean, we can just go down a list of positions uh, that are held now by African-Americans. And we know uh, that is in part because of Kamala Harris's presence in that White House. All right, Bob, a different kind of vice president, Mike Pence. Joe mentioned his name. You know, I talked about him earlier in the show. He announced his run for presidency by attacking a guy he had been super, super loyal to for four years by saying he was unfit 
to be the president and told us some of those confidential things we've been talking about that the vice president and president talk, you know, when they're in their private moments. He told us that Trump was trying to get him, you know, to overthrow the government, essentially. So what do we make of this historic uh, incident today where we have a former vice president attacking a former president that he served under? And they're both running for president. And <laughs> yes, let's throw that had, in there too. We, we've only had one former president who's ever been elected president again, and that's Grover Cleveland. Uh, we've come a long way from 1960, and Joel mentioned uh, Richard Nixon's somewhat expanded role, but it was not expanded that far. Uh, he ran on the slogan, Experience Counts, and President Eisenhower was asked famously at a news conference, uh, can you name one thing where he's had a big impact? And Eisenhower responded, if you give me a week, I might think of something, uh, which became, by the way, one of the first classic negative ads in the history of American politics, because the Kennedy campaign plastered it all over the country on television screens everywhere. Uh, but I think that might apply to Mike Pence. If you gave me a week, I might think of something. I can think of one. Uh, for most of the administration, all he did, other than reinforce what I think Trump was going to do anyway in terms of being very conservative on social issues, all he did was basically function as a yes man. But there came a point at which that broke. And it broke, and he ought to get credit for this, it broke on January 6th, and in the days leading up to it, when... Basically, the, not basically, the president wanted him to throw out the Electoral College votes, uh, try to get the election over to the House, where we have this odd rule that you vote by state delegations, not by the majority of House members. And that would probably result in, would have resulted in Trump being reelected. And Pence, I think, thought about it, examined his conscience, talked to people about it. He talked to Dan Quayle of all people, you mm. know, a, a, one of the one of the, the the most ridiculed vice presidents in modern history. And Quayle said, well, "You have no authority to turn down the electoral votes. You have to open them and read them, and that's it. That's your job. And then you say who got the most electoral votes and is therefore president uh, uh, of the United States." Uh, that I think was the moment where he broke. Now, look, as a result of that, he has a 37% unfavorable in the Republican Party. Uh, he's running for president. He's going to focus in Iowa, where about 65% of the Republican caucus electorate is, uh, consists of self-identified evangelicals. And mm -hmm. Pence, as the most conservative candidate on social issues, is going to spend a ton of time in Iowa and try to win those caucuses. One of the odd things, though, I would say about that, it's not true of Democrats, but it's certainly true of Republicans. It's been a long time since a Republican who won the Iowa caucuses actually won the presidency. It's actually been 24 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting, because you're right. He did uh, buck Trump on January 6th, and he did just open the envelope and, and you know, read what was contained inside and Biden became president. But Joe, we also have seen Mike Pence waver 
on what happened on January 6th. He hasn't always been so forthright about what Trump tried to get him to do. And he hasn't always been so forthright about how Trump was unfit for office. He has been an apologist for Donald Trump and his actions on January 6th. What are we to make of that? Because this is a new Mike Pence. This is mm -hmm. not the Mike Pence that we've seen, you know, just a couple of months ago on this very issue. Yeah, it, it struck me that his statement today was much uh, was much stronger than anything he said up to this point. And there were many times when I've thought to myself that um, that th th if if somebody had put me and and my wife and my family in the position um, that that Trump played a role in Pence being in on January sixth and then did nothing to protect him, didn't even call him to ask him if he was okay or send help, um, I, I would have been much more, um, I, I think, uh, vocal about my uh, outrage than than Pence has been so far. Um, I, and, and the other thing is that, that Vice President Pence, um, even into the early days in January, while I agree with Bob that he, he does deserve credit for following the Constitution and the law on January 6th, um, you know, he he was sending out some mixed signals in terms of uh, some of his rhetoric. Um, but I think that one of the things that is intriguing to me, and I'd be interested in in Bob's take on this, is it seems to me that he's really raised the issue um, that now every every Republican candidate is going to be asked, um, do they think that Trump is disqualified based on what he did on January 6th? And everybody else is going to have to take a position on that um, on that issue, uh, I would think. Yeah, when we come forward, we'll get your response to that, Bob, because you're right, Joe. None of the other candidates have even gone anywhere near January 6th. And in fact, some have tried to reframe January 6th, blaming it on the FBI, blaming it on Democrats who were feigning to be Trump supporters. So, Bob, uh, when we come forward, we'll get your take on whether now all nine of those other candidates running for GOP uh, the GOP presidency are going to have to respond to the question of whether Donald Trump is unfit. And I want to talk about, you know, these other Democrats that want to line up against Kamala Harris, uh, who may be running for president herself uh, in 2028. When we come forward, KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Bob, you are on the hot seat. Do the other nine candidates running to be the Republican nominee for president have to answer the question of whether Donald Trump is unfit to be the president based on how he conducted himself on January 6th? Yeah, I don't think Chris Christie will have any problem answering <laughs> that question. Uh, He's he doesn't have much chance of winning. He's very unpopular in the Republican Party, but he's running to be the Trump terminator. Uh, and so I think he'd, he'd say that's not the only reason he's unfit. Let me give you 10 more. Uh, even though he was on the Trump train all the way up. Yes. Until the president started denying President Trump started denying the, the results of the election. Yeah, they're all going to get asked. And the irony is that to get on the debate stage and get asked, they're going to have to pledge under the RNC rules that have been established for the Republican debates that they will support the nominee no matter who it is. 
So mm-hmm. they could be in this rather anomalous position of having signed this document saying they're going to support someone who one or two of them or three of them might say is unfit. Most of them will not say that. They yeah, are- particularly those that are running to be vice president, which I suspect Tim Scott and Nikki Haley fall into that category. They're never going to criticize Donald Trump. Well, that's part of it. Uh, Nikki Haley's criticized him mildly on some foreign policy stuff. But I think it's partly vice president. It's also partly the mistake of 2016. Uh, Everybody thought Trump would ultimately fall apart and they wanted to inherit his support. Mm -hmm. So they weren't going to go after him. And when Chris Christie gave his announcement speech last night, he said, look, that was a mistake. We were wrong. and." Uh, but I think a lot of them still are in that mindset. Trump has a big lead. I do think it's going to get much more complicated for Trump. I mean, if well, he does, yeah, it, there's a headline now about these indictments being imminent from the special counsel on this, you know, classified document issue. So not only is it going to get complicated, they're going to have to decide: do they address the unfit question? But are they, Joe, going to talk about the fact that the guy is indicted in Manhattan? by a state prosecutor and now, you know, potentially is indicted by this federal prosecutor? Can you be running for president and not mention that the guy running with you has two indictments? No, I think that's certainly going to be part of the uh, the, the discussion. I, I think, as Bob suggested in the last one, different people will handle it differently and uh, some will attack the prosecutors and, 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 and some will attack uh uh, 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 Mr. Trump, but um, but but it's certainly going to be part of the discussion, uh, both in the primary and then in the general election. Yeah, I want to talk about the presumptive nominee to be the candidate for the Democratic Party. So you said earlier, Bob, that most vice presidents have gone on to become president, or at least they run. So we would expect if Biden wins this next election in 2024, that that would be true in 28 of Kamala Harris, that she would be the presumptive nominee for the Democratic Party. Yet we hear a lot of folks saying, oh, no, she can't be the candidate. She can't win. She's black. She's a woman. She's not strong enough, blah, 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 blah. And we have folks like Gavin Newsom and, you know, others suggesting that they are preparing themselves to be the candidate in 2028. Uh, Are we going to see something change in the way that Democrats treat their vice president when we get to 2028 and Kamala Harris should be the presumptive nominee? Well, we have a long way to go before we get there. Uh, And the history of the modern era is that a lot of vice presidents have gone on to win their party's nomination, but not without being challenged. Uh, uh, George H.W. Bush had a lot of challengers in 1988. Al Gore was challenged uh, by Bill Bradley in 2000, although Gore went on to win every single primary and caucus which no non-incumbent has ever done or had ever done before. Uh, I think that if Biden is reelected, and I believe he will be, uh, and if they have a successful second term, she will be a much stronger candidate by then. There's also a demographic shift going on in America. you know, older people, and I shouldn't say this since I resemble the remark, are aging out of the electorate. And younger people who are more tolerant uh, and more open uh, are going to have more power. Uh, 
So I think that by the time we get to 2028, she will be a formidable candidate. But I, I think it's very unlikely that there will not be other candidates who will run as well. What do you think, Joe? Do you think the attacks that she has been enduring since she became vice president and which will continue in this election coming up for 24 and we should expect them to continue even in a successful Biden-Harris administration, that those attacks weaken her? Well, I, I think Bob's analysis is exactly right. I, I think that, she, that uh, and I think that uh, one of the disadvantages that I think she had, particularly in the first few years of, of the administration, was that there was, that, that normally when you're elected vice president, you have the first term to be vice president. And then after you get reelected, you can start thinking about or running for president. Um, in her case, because there was sort of some ambiguity about what President Biden would do um, until he made the announcement. Um, I, I think there was some ambiguity and it, it made people look at, at Vice President Harris's position with sort of an ambiguity. Was her year 2024 or 2028? I think that, that now she's in a stronger position. I think that, um, that if you look at all of the other people in the Democratic Party, they would much rather be where she's sitting than being a senator or a governor or a representative or any other position. Um, I think the vice presidency is the best springboard. And if the administration is successful, she'll be in a, a strong position. But sure, the attacks are going to continue, um, particularly on the, on the Republican side. Um, and, you know, when you get into a, a, a primary, I mean, Bill Bradley went after Al Gore. Um, uh, uh, Bob Dole went after George H.W. Bush, and as did Jack Kemp. That's what happens when different people run for president. Bob, let me ask you this. So some folks are criticizing Biden. They said that Biden didn't do, do enough to protect his vice president, Vice President Harris. Uh, what do you make of that comment? And should he be doing more? And secondly, how should the Democratic Party handle this notion that the Republicans are trying to plant in this, the minds of voters, that Biden isn't really running to be president for the next four years. He's running so that he can retire or something to you know, hand over the office to Vice President Harris. I think you'll see a two-pronged Democratic campaign. One will be about the accomplishments of the administration, and they won't overclaim that they have a lot they can claim credit for. And the other will be, look at what's on the other side. Look at the dangers to democracy. Look at the dangers to women's re women's rights, reproductive rights, LGBT rights. Uh, I think that will be the Democratic campaign. I don't think the smartest thing to do here would be to mount some kind of Kamala Harris rehabilitation tour as part of, uh, of, of, of the campaign. I think you go about your business, you keep governing, uh, and at the end of the day, uh, I think that she'll, she will be renominated. She will, I believe, be reelected along with, with, with Joe Biden. But you, one thing you got to understand about Biden, by the way, that I think is critical here is he's about governing. You know, and, and Joel mentioned earlier that the, 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 the major roles, how the roles shift that vice presidents play. Well, the reason she's not playing the role he played which is negotiating with Congress, is because he was in the Senate for decades and he is an expert negotiator in terms of how to get something done in the Congress. 
Yeah, no, no, great point there. Well, guys, we got to leave it there. Great insights. Uh, I, I feel so much smarter, and I'm sure everyone that's listening <laughs> and watching uh, can attest to the same. Whenever I, you're on, Bob, I learn so much. And Joe, I know why they call you the world's most, uh, you know, brilliant person on the issue of the vice presidents in the office. Again, you're the author of the White House Vice President: The Path to Significance, Mondale to Biden. Make sure you pick up a copy of it. The vice president, uh, as well, is important, as you heard my two experts say, and the GOP is fixated with our vice president because she is powerful, she's capable, she's effective, and she's doing exactly uh, what she was elected to do, which is kick a whole lot of butt. So we're proud of her. Thank you so much, Joel. Thank you, Robert. The next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.